You're listening to the Let's Talk Future podcast series presented by Oppenheimer. If you're interested in the economy, markets, and investing in general, you've come to the right place. This series was created to fascinate and enlighten every type of investor. Curious about the latest consumer trends? How about innovations in healthcare or technology? The Let's Talk Future series definitely has you covered. Through timely and relevant conversations, we deliver the best thought leadership in the financial services industry. Our renowned hosts and guests explore big ideas and big questions and leave you with actionable insights. In this episode, our guest is Carlos Desmaris, Executive Director of Public Finance at Oppenheimer. And our host is Jane Ross, Managing Director of Investment Banking. Welcome to this episode entitled ESG, Munis, and High Impact Investing in Today's Market. I'm your host, Jane Ross, and we're talking with Carlos Desmaris, Executive Director in Public Finance at Oppenheimer. Now, I know we have a few things in this title. First, ESG and Environmental, Social, and Governance Investing. This has been a strategic imperative for many investors, but performance in these baskets has been tough this year, and there's ongoing controversy around labeling requirements and metrics. Next, we have munis, or municipal bonds. These are viewed as safe and defensive investments, but they've definitely been negatively affected by rising interest rates this year. Finally, we mention impact investing, are a way to structure investments with measurable environmental impacts to get a targeted financial return. So we think this discussion is particularly well-timed. Environmental issues are generating daily headlines. Munis are now offering some pretty solid risk-adjusted returns, and investors are grappling with how to play these developments. Lucky for us, we have Carlos Desmaris, Executive Director in Oppenheimer's Public Finance Department, to help us navigate here. Carlos provides coverage to a huge range of issuers, from states and cities to major independent authorities, as well as state funds and infrastructure banks. Prior to his career in public finance, Carlos worked in the independent power sector, heading the valuation effort at a major investor-owned utility, and as an asset manager at one of the largest renewable power plants. So clearly, Carlos knows this stuff. I'd like to welcome Carlos. Thank you, Jane. Thanks for inviting me on the show and uh, for that great intro. And you're right, ESG uh, it has certainly been popular and, uh, and somewhat controversial. It's certainly a growing sector in terms of asset management. Bloomberg Intelligence estimates that inflows into ESG-mandated funds, uh, if they remain on track, these funds are going to account for one out of every $3 that are under professional management by 2025. So they'd grow from $35 trillion today to $50 trillion by 2025. Wow. And, you know, the E in ESG, despite all the the controversies around the category, certainly environmental considerations aren't going away anytime soon as well. You're right. I think that when people think about ESG, uh, you know, the accent is definitely on the environmental side of things. And I think that's basically driven by the headlines. And so, you know, the week before this show was taped, uh, you know, we saw some you know, startling headlines out of Europe. Uh, You had wildfires raging in uh, France, Italy, Portugal, and Spain. The UK was experiencing record temperatures, 104 degrees 
you know, never seen before in that temperate area of Europe. And here in the States, in the South, uh, in the Southwest, Central Plains, and even in Florida, we were seeing dangerous levels of heat. Similar to Europe, it's not limited just to the southern region of the country. Just last year, Portland experienced a, a heat wave that saw temperatures reach 114 degrees in the temperate northwest. And that new record, the 114 degree temperature, represented an increase of 15 degrees over the prior record that had been set just last year. So we're definitely seeing you know, more extreme weather more frequently, which is sort of like the signature uh, of climate change. Right. And and then all of that leads to spikes in demand for electricity. And I, it looks like we can't rely on the federal government, which gets to the players that you deal with in, in state and, and local municipalities. In terms of the country's infrastructure, most of it is done locally. It's done at a state, at a county, at a regional level, at a, at a city or a town level. They play the leading role in building our infrastructure. And most of that infrastructure has been and will continue to be financed by municipal bonds. Uh, that's not new. But what is somewhat new is that there has been a sea change in interest rates. And so obviously everyone's aware that rates have increased sharply. But just to give you a sense of how much they've increased in the muni market, I took a look around for comparables. It's sort of tricky to find comparables in the muni market because there's so many issuers. But uh, one of our issuers issued bonds in November of 2019 with a final maturity in 2044. And that bond had a yield of a 232. Fast forward to May of 2022, so that's two and a half years later, they issued a bond with a final maturity in 2042, very similar coupon, and that bond had a yield of 421. So that's 189 basis points increase in yield over that course of time. So munis no longer have that 2% handle. Uh, they've got a 4% handle if you go out far, far enough on the yield curve. And, uh, and to put that in context, if you're looking at, you know, an assumed combined federal and state and local tax rate of 35%, that 421 would translate to about a 647. That's what your a corporate bond or a treasury bond would have to earn to, to be treading water against that muni. And that would be very difficult to do, especially considering the high quality of the credits in muni land. Most municipal credits are rated single A or double A. Exactly. That's why I think our, our timing is so good here. I come from high yield and the numbers that you just talked about get my attention. So I think this is worth focusing on. Now, before we get into some of the other nitty gritty, you know, there have been questions about labeling and greenwashing. But again, in your space, in the municipal bond space, that's not as relevant. That's right. I mean, I think that there's been a lot of concern about hyping or overhyping, uh, you know, the, the, the greeniness, if you will, of different investments. And, and I think it makes, you know, somewhat sense. I mean, it's surprising to find out that, you know, large oil companies are in fact, you know, some of them are labeled green. And, you know, would they really find a home in a portfolio that's really looking to mitigate or offset the impact of what the oil companies have wrought? And so I think, I think that's difficult to imagine. But in the case of munis, uh, you're, you're seeing, you know, entities that what they're doing is they're building wastewater plants. They're building uh, water treatment plants. They're addressing issues in terms of uh, efficiency of municipal buildings, of uh, street lighting. So their, their greenness, if you will, can't really be questioned because it's sort of central to their mission. Right. And another 
issue that I just want to bring up quickly because I find it sort of overwhelming is there are so many issuers in this market. Uh, it, it's sort of difficult to figure out what to look at. So, you know, maybe we can tackle that by talking about some of the issue, issues that investors can solve for. And when we talk about environmental concerns, carbon avoidance and public transportation seem to be at the top of the list. Yeah, transit is another one of those sort of like mission-centric and it's centered on the environment. Uh, here in New York, uh, the, the big dog, and in fact, they're the big dog for the country, is the MTA. Their transportation network has a broad reach. It's pervasive throughout the New York metro area. It has uh, you know, essentially all modes of transportation. And in terms of their scale, they really do stand apart from other transit systems in the country. And, and just to put some numbers on that, over 80% of all Heavy rail transit rides in the country are done with on an MTA subway. Over 54% of all commuter rail ridership is MTA. And over 31% of all bus ridership is also MTA. So it, it's a leader in terms of ridership, but it's also been a leader in terms of climate change bonds. And so it is an original signer to uh, the Climate Bond Initiative, joining that in 2016. And uh, every year, they issue anywhere from six to eight bonds each year. Typically, half of them are labeled green. Wow. And when we talk about public transport and carbon avoidance, their projects play a huge role in that, right? Yeah, the MTA estimates that uh, it avoids an unbelievable 17 million metric tons of greenhouse gases each year, while it emits only 2 million. So that's a net 7 million metric ton annual avoidance for the MTA. And it's really thanks to the MTA and one entity that we're going to talk about in a bit, the New York Power Authority, uh, that, that New York really stands apart from the other states. New York is sort of known for its high density, for its intense traffic, yet New York has the lowest carbon footprint per capita of all 50 states. And, and it's able to achieve that in great part thanks to the MTA. Yeah. And you know, another headline that I always see is public ridership after COVID. I know that we took a hit and the name of this series is called Let's Talk Future. You know, what are the things that the MTA is doing today that's going to affect the future of transport in their area? For many years, the, the MTA was involved in state of good repair capital projects, trying to bring up their current infrastructure to a state of good repair. But now for a number of their multi-year capital plans, uh, they have actually started expanding their network. And, uh, and they've been involved in some of the country's largest capital investments in infrastructure. And frankly, some of their projects are engineering marvels in their own right. You have to keep in mind that a lot of the MTA projects have to be built around a built-up city. And this year, actually, they're going to be inaugurating and bringing into service what's called Eastside Access. And that project ha has a number of different aspects to it. I'll just name two. And one is they're building an entire new terminal underneath Grand Central. In fact, it's 10 stories underneath Grand Central. And uh, in terms of the scale of that terminal, it's the largest rail terminal built in the U.S. Uh, in the last 70 years. And that terminal will provide east side access to the Long Island Railroad. If you don't live in New York, you might not know this, which is that the Long Island Railroad, which services Long Island, actually brings passengers into the west side of Manhattan. Passengers 
who actually work on the east side would then have to take the subway or the bus or walk to their office. So what east side access does is it provides access to folks in Long Island to Midtown Manhattan on the east side at Grand Central. It's also expanding rail capacity by adding an additional rail line along the most heavily trafficked portion of the Long Island Railroad. The net result of this is there's going to be a 40% increase in capacity on the Long Island Railroad thanks to the combination of these projects. Wow. A new terminal 10 stories below Grand Central. That's just crazy. Well, another area that we can talk about to sort of organize how to approach this market is in local communities. And I know munis often tackle resiliency issues, water issues. That's a huge place to be looking for opportunities, right? It is. And, and it's a constant stream of projects. So whether you want to invest at a regional or a local level, you're going to find that there, there are water and wastewater investments that are going to impact your local community. A, a lot of those projects are also uh, funded through state revolving funds. And one of the most innovative in the country is the Rhode Island Infrastructure Bank, or, or RIB. RIB had, began as a water and wastewater SRF, but it has actually expanded its mission and it's become sort of central to infrastructure investments in Rhode Island. And so in addition to having water and wastewater projects being financed out of RIB, you've got uh, two different energy efficiency programs, you've got two resiliency project programs, and you've got a brownfield remediation program all of them being funded by this very innovative infrastructure bank in Rhode Island. Another area um, where we spend a lot of time at Oppenheimer, certainly in resources in our research department, is in sustainability, energy efficiency. There, too, there are a lot of really interesting projects that are happening right now in the muni market. Yeah, muni utilities, I think, are a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of sustainability and resiliency compared to their investor-owned utility uh, brethren, if you will. And uh, here in New York, we have a very unique entity, the New York Power Authority, which is a statewide entity. And uh, it's the largest wholesale public utility measured by generation in the country. It owns 16 different power plants. But most of its power uh, is generated by two large hydroelectric projects in upstate New York. That's the Niagara Power Project and the St. Lawrence FDR Power Project. Part of the reason that New York State has such a low carbon footprint, in addition to the MTA, is that a significant amount of power is generated by these hydroelectric facilities owned by NIPA. NIPA, in addition to generating power, is also an owner of transmission lines. In fact, it owns about 37% of the high-voltage transmission infrastructure in the state of New York. Interestingly enough, they've actually set up a, a new financing vehicle to finance transmission projects. It's away from their general revenue bond resolution. And they inaugurated that issue this year with a series of projects that are going to enhance reliability, but they're also going to enhance capacity and clean up a bottleneck that sort of bottles up a lot of renewable energy that's produced in northern New York and cannot reach pools of demand in southeastern New York. And so it, by uh, clearing the bottleneck, if you will, uh, not only are they going to help the current resources, but there is a long list of renewable energy power projects that could be built, but haven't been given the green light because there's not enough transmission. Once this is complete, you're going to see the green light and you're going to see an increase in renewable energy projects in New York State. 
It's so interesting because when I think about munis, again, it's not a real exciting place, but these are really cutting edge projects. Transmission problems are something that we talk about a lot in the sustainable marketplace. So there are munis right at the front of that. So when our investors are approaching this market, I think you've talked about some of the silos that we can look in. Are there any other structural issues that people should be aware of? Yeah, I think investors who are taking a look at the muni market for the first time are going to be pleased by you know some institutional aspects of the market. One of those is the priority of order rules in the primary market. And typically what you find in the primary market on the muni side is that retail orders are given priority over and above institutional orders. Not very typical of most primary market transactions. And uh, as a result, uh, if a bond is in hot demand, it's those retail orders that get filled first before the institutional order gets filled. But it goes beyond that in the sense that there are transactions, portfolio level transactions that an investor might like to do that are sort of difficult to do in the secondary market. You might be interested in doing a laddered portfolio or a barbell portfolio. And that has some complexity in terms of execution in the secondary market, but thanks to priority of order rules in the primary market, it's relatively straightforward in the primary market. And I'd like to end it with this, uh, which is that you know we've talked about impact investing and, and the accent being on, on the E, and, and I've discussed a, a number of issuers. I've talked about the MTA, the New York Power Authority, and RIB, but I think it's important to note that you know the, these are large regional issuers. But no matter where you are in the country, there's those large regional issuers, but there's also local issuers. So if you're looking to have an impact in your local community, the muni market really does provide you a a large menu of possible investments, whether it's your local water or wastewater utility, whether it's your local town or city that's updating street lighting, there's always going to be opportunities to have an impact, put that accent on the E and have that impact be local. Exactly. And and investors can do that work now in an environment where we're finally seeing some real attractive rates of return. So, Carlos, thank you so much. I really appreciate you spending the time going through the particulars of the marketplace and the sectors there. And we hope to do this again with you soon. Thanks so much. Thanks again, Jane, for inviting me. And I I look forward to our, our next podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Future. We know your podcast listening options are endless, so we're glad you're spending time with us. Don't miss out on our next episode. And remember to subscribe today. Join our community to expand your thoughts on business, the markets, and the dynamic forces affecting them. It's time to talk future.